Our scripture reading today is from uh, Acts 15, verses 1 through 21. That's a long passage. Settle in, get comfortable. This is the first council of the Christian church, the council in Jerusalem. I would liken it to a presbytery meeting, which we just had this week, but it was much grander than that. It's even much grander than a general assembly of all of our congregations. This predates denominations. This was the Christian church. The church was expanding, as we've heard uh, Pastor Kurt preach about, and it was uh, going out to the areas, up into Antioch and, and missionaries, and there were some conflicts in expansion and growing, growing pains. You know, how do we do things and so forth. And so that's what this is about. The Council of Jerusalem. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they, went, uh, so they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported, this is the reporting part of the General Assembly time, um, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised in order to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. And after they had, uh, been, there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The whole assembly kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told all of the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written. After this, uh, after this I will return. I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen. From its ruins I will rebuild it, and I will set it up so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. 
before I reached the decision, therefore I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles whom God, who are turning to God, but we should write uh, we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled from blood. For in every city for generations past, Moses has had those who, who proclaim him, for he, has been, uh, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Scott. That passage is a fitting passage, nice and thick, full of a lot of of words and complexity uh, because it reflects kind of the, the first exhibition or the first snapshot of the church as an institution at not just this free-flowing movement of the Spirit, which the church is, but also it has an institutional reality. At, that's what happens when, when people gather together and, and it becomes a, a formalized movement. There are leaders. There are decisions to make. We've all heard of corporate restructures. When businesses make strategic changes at their headquarters— followed by the pronouncement of new policies and practices that radiate to the far reaches of the company's work and influence. In the news lately, there have been some very notable corporations that have uh, done some reassessing of their financial picture, and it's led them to decide to lay off a number of employees. Actually, quite a few of, of our local tech giants are in that form of corporate restructure. In a sense, in this congregation, we're currently in somewhat of a corporate restructure because we're in the middle of a mission study. At the center of our corporate life, we're taking a fresh look at what it means for us to be a church as we move into the future. We started with congregation-wide meetings, inviting everyone to be a part of it from the ground up. And it will start to shift into congregational leaders taking the fruits of those gatherings and moving us forward in mission. Official meetings and organizational decisions have been around in the church from the very beginning. And this is perhaps a great relief, especially to Presbyterians. You see, Presbyterians have hardwired this aspect of the Christian faith into our life together. While some churches have names, some church groups or denominations, if you will, have names that that basically mean filled with the Holy Spirit or worldwide impact. Presbyterian's name means governed by elders. So we know what we're talking about when it comes to councils and organized Christianity. Corporate restructuring is actually one major way that the church adapts 
as it pursues God's mission in the world. To the extent that all church members participate in the governance of the church and those who are elected to serve as elders more so, it makes sense to notice these moments, like in Acts chapter 15, when official changes are adopted. Like Scott mentioned, Acts 15 features the very famous Jerusalem Council. And what it describes is very much like a corporate restructuring. It's at the very center of the book of Acts, and not by accident, because what the Council of Jerusalem decides is a game changer for the church, for the rest of its history, and it's meaningful even today. You see, an issue emerged from a conflict in a particular region of churches, and that was brought to the home offices in Jerusalem to get the official word on the subject. And eventually, a central decision was made, and an authoritative word went out that would be the policy of the church everywhere. It was important to everyone, and controversial to many, and quite prophetic. You see, the particular issue that is being dealt with at the Jerusalem Council early in the church's life, as you read through the New Testament, you realize that it pops up again and again and again, even in the far reaches of the Mediterranean in the early church. And so it validates the importance of this decision. In the church, the most worthwhile debates are about the essentials. The essentials that every believer should embrace. Those are debates worthwhile. We might call these essentials the majors. Now we're tempted at times to have debates and get worked up about what are not the majors. And that's what we call majoring in the minors. And that gets us into trouble. It certainly gets us into the weeds. And these debates may reveal topics on which Christians may hold different convictions. And we'd call those the minors. And for the early church, Acts 15 is decisive in declaring that one of the essentials for the church is that Gentiles or non-Jewish people do not need to become Jewish in order to become Christians. It may seem odd at first for us because most of us did not become Jewish before we became Christian, but up to that point in the church, that was the pattern. Jesus was Jewish. His disciples were Jewish. And so, so much of the culture of the early church and the teaching of the early church was designed for Jewish people. But then the outreach, the mission that Jesus sent them on, took them into Gentile places to meet Gentile people who were not Jewish. So let's uh, read about this dispute. This dispute about the place of circumcision in the Christian life. It's presented as a deepening of a vital issue that was first presented 
by Peter's encounter with the Gentile Roman soldier Cornelius that we talked about last week. And that encounter regarded the Holy Spirit's loosening of dietary restrictions for Gentiles and Jews as they were fellowshipping together, which was a big division that was starting to grow in the early church. And the Holy Spirit made it very clear that that, that did not need to divide the church. Okay, so to kick it off, to revi- review what we, si- what we read in Acts 15, the first few verses. Certain people were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, you can't be saved. So this is about who can be saved by Jesus or not. And this brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute and debate with these people. Started arguing it out at the church level. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed to go to Jerusalem and to see the apostles and elders and get the official word. Now at first glance, circumcision may seem like an odd topic to get so worked up about. This fact of life that is, frankly, not always welcome in public and polite conversation. It's a trivial topic for most, except those in the childbearing years, which the parents who are currently contributing to our present baby boom in our congregation could attest. We currently have a nursery. We had an event last Sunday night for young families. We had nine kids in the nursery and that was seven families in the fireside room, and there were like five or six regular families who weren't even able to be there. So if you talk to families that are in the childbearing years, you have to think about circumcision. So the classic book titled, What to Expect in the First Year, which is the follow-up from the classic, What to Expect when You're Expecting, lists the topic of choosing to circumcise or not at number two only after choosing how to feed your baby, but before choosing a name. I believe this is because this is the order of when you need to make that decision when you're in the hospital. For God's chosen people, circumcision was not a choice. It was a sign. It was a sign of the covenant relationship between that particular people and God. It was, in a sense, the sign of their salvation. It was a major. But here in Acts 15, it's made clear that for Gentile believers, it's actually a minor. But if it's a minor, is there a new major that took its place? And the answer to that is yes, in fact. And we see it reflected in Peter's impassioned testimony in verse 11 of chapter 15. He says, this is in the NIV, No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. It's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that is now, for all Christians, the major. That's the major. In fact, that's what circumcision kind of signified all of those years for God's people. And yet now, in Christ, it is our being saved by grace. Grace, meaning unmerited favor. This gets to the heart of the purpose of the church. Whenever we talk about the grace of Jesus Christ, this is a major. It's the foundation on which the church is built. 
the fact that God came to be with us in Jesus Christ. And as the Apostle Paul wrote later in a letter to the Roman church, said that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. We didn't have to earn our salvation. It comes to us as a gift because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That's why the cross is so central to the Christian faith. That's why it is the central image, because it reminds us of God's grace. It was Jesus who died for our sins on the cross. We didn't do that. Jesus did it for us even before we even had a chance of getting our act together, which we don't have much of a chance of without Jesus and without his grace. When we talk about the purpose of the church, um, I was led to uh, something that was written in a book recently by uh, Dr. Scott Sunquist, who's the president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Massachusetts. He's a missiologist with a lifelong specialty in Asian Christianity. He was also one of my doctoral dissertation advisors at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary about a decade ago. In 2019, he published a book called Why Church? He wrote it thinking of his own struggle in his youth and his young adulthood in looking at the church and kind of being confused by all the activity, all the statements, all the claims. What is the church truly about? He remembers wondering that. And in his sense of compassion for people who are new to the faith, he's a missiologist, so he thinks about people who are, who are coming to Christ in different cultures, and, and, and our churches are so filled up with a lot of cultural aspects. It's difficult to distinguish between a major and a minor for a lot of people. So Sunquist takes the testimony of the New Testament, including these first few chapters in Acts that we've been talking about, And he breaks it down to two words, worship and witness. Another word for witness is mission. But worship and witness, these two words help us understand the mission of the church, but they also help us understand the full story of the Jerusalem Council. Because as you noticed in listening to the story, there is this great, basically, demoting of circumcision from a major to a minor while it lifts up the grace of Jesus as the major for all of us. But that wasn't the end of the story. There was actually something that the Jerusalem church told Gentile believers to do. And what were those? Well, what the Jerusalem council decided to require of Gentile believers when they took away the requirement of circumcision, actually, I believe, underscores the importance of worship and witness in their lives. Worship God alone. The requirement was suggested by James, one of Jesus' disciples, who by that time was acknowledged the official leader of the official church in Jerusalem. In verse 13, he starts his speech by saying, Brothers, listen to me. And then he continues on and says, It is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from certain things. 
And the first one on the list was to abstain from food polluted by idols. So the Gentiles are turning to God and no longer need to be circumcised, but they're told to abstain from particular practices, with the first prohibition being food that has been offered in worship to other gods. Now, following this guidance would, in fact, help them keep the main thing the main thing, to worship God alone and not participate in the worship of other gods. Food sacrifice to idols was, uh, in worship was quite common in the world of this era, and it's discussed elsewhere in the New Testament as kind of a constant temptation because it was going on all around them. And yet the leaders in the Jerusalem church knew that, that this was something for Gentile believers, it would be maybe a temptation. That for Jewish Christians, it wasn't a temptation at all because they'd been raised in, they'd been, they'd been simmering in this teaching in the Jewish religion about worshiping God alone. It was in the Shema. Remember the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall have no other gods before me in the Ten Commandments. And yet the Gentiles didn't have the benefit of that training. And so this prohibition, if you will, was meant for them to be able to fellowship with their fellow Christians and navigate the challenges. Now in this series, we've been talking about the adaptive moves that a church might make in order to pursue God's mission. But the entrance of the concept of idolatry or worshiping other gods into this picture leads us to ask an important question. And this is always a good question to ask when you're looking at change. Might this adaptive move lead us to put other things at the center in place of God? Will this change move our focus away from the focus on God? It's clear at this point that the whole Jesus movement that continues in the church today is about lives centered on the living God. As we consider adaptive moves of changing in order to continue the work of Jesus in the world today, does it keep us focused on God or does it lead us in different directions? Because there is much in life that competes for supremacy in our lives. People, products, feelings, philosophies. And Jesus' movement was about putting the one true God at the center of it all. And if we follow the competition, we aren't, in fact, turning to God. We're turning to something else. Speaking of competition, so I understand there's a, there's a competition going on today that is important, evidently. Uh, the, uh, is anyone, like, really excited about the Super Bowl today? Yes, thank you for standing up. Sometimes you've got to stand up. Now, if the Seahawks were playing, raise your hand if you'd be excited. Okay, we got, let the record show. We've got some diehard Seahawks fans here. So, okay, so there's a Super Bowl. It's happening today. I was blown away by a, a YouTube video that I saw this week. And some of you are aware that there are two brothers, the Kelsey brothers, one of whom plays on the Eagles and the other plays on the Chiefs. Well, they, they have a podcast together. And they were recording a podcast. This was actually last week. So before they went to the venue city of the Super Bowl, they were recording 
the podcast between the championship game and the Super Bowl within the headquarters of the Philadelphia Eagles. So Travis Kelsey, who plays for the Chiefs, was in the headquarters of the Eagles between the championship game and the Super Bowl. I thought, I don't know. Let's wait and see what he might have seen when he was there. He talked about going into the cafeteria, that was all. <laughs> but I thought that was remarkable because in that competition, there is a clear separation, right? That, you know, the Eagles don't share their plays with the Chiefs. The Chiefs don't share their plays with the Eagles. Well, there are clearly different philosophies from Christianity that in the Christian faith that, that we would say are, are things that, that we want to, they might be places where we have commonalities among the minors, but when it comes to the majors, that we would want to keep focusing on what's important to our faith. The Presbyterian Book of Confessions includes a statement of conviction that actually emerged from a council that gathered when some Christians were trying to make a minor into a major. And it actually had the potential to have world-changing impact. It actually involved putting a human being at the center instead of God. And it's known as the Barman Declaration. It was crafted in the 1930s in Germany when Adolf Hitler was demanding a place of singular authority in the German Christian church. This actually happened. And many in the church went along with it because at that time, that's what all Germans were doing as they were getting behind their leader. Leader, translated, Fuhrer. And the requisite conformity that was to come. But this council was known as the Confessing Church. They said no. And they wrote this. Jesus Christ, as he is attested for us in Holy Scripture, is the one word of God which we have to hear and which we have to trust and obey in life and in death. We reject the false doctrine as though the church could and would have to acknowledge as a source of its proclamation apart from and besides from this one word of God still other events and powers, figures and truths as God's revelation. And later it said, we reject the false doctrine as though the church were permitted to abandon the form of its message and order and order to its own pleasure or to the changes in prevailing ideological or political convictions. It's saying Jesus Christ is a major and Adolf Hitler is not. Sometimes the church is called to take a stand like that. And the confessing church was doing that. The Christian faith is about turning from sin and turning to Jesus Christ. And this is embedded in our baptismal liturgy. Expressed in the questions, do you turn from the ways of sin and renounce evil and its power in the world? That's turning from something. While you turn to Jesus Christ, accept him as your Lord and Savior, trusting in his grace and his love. And for each of us individually and for this congregation corporately, the guiding question is this. This is something to take with us into our times of contemplation with our own lives. To what or to whom are we most devoted? To what or to whom are we most devoted? Where do we invest our time? 
What words or images dominate our days? Taking time to consider these questions helps us remain connected to perhaps the most central major in the Christian faith, worshiping God alone. The second thing that James suggests Gentile newcomers to the faith be told is to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, to abstain from anything in our society is a counter-cultural move, to say the least. But when it comes to sexual ethics, that's particularly true. And it was much the same in the first century, believe it or not. The Greek word translated as sexual immorality in the NIV and fornication in the uh, passage that Scott read is one that will sound familiar to modern ears. Pornea. As an element of the Jewish law, this wor- word spoke of illicit or, or uh, prohibited sexual activity such as prostitution or sex outside the boundaries of marriage. So why would this have been important? for the Jerusalem council to say to Gentile Christians that not only were they to abstain from something that would lead them possibly into worshiping other gods, why would they need to abstain from sexual immorality? Well, there's a worship dimension here for sure because one common practice in the Hellenistic world, the Greek world at the time, was religious prostitution. Prostitution that that was involved in religious exercises at temples. And so that is like what people in your community were doing to be religious. And in the Christian faith, that didn't, didn't go. That, that's not what we do. And so they would need to be reminded of that because maybe their idea of what worship was is not the way that worship is. But it's more than this. The sexual ethics of the Jewish religion, which required fidelity within a covenant of marriage, were also the sexual ethics taught by Jesus himself. And these ethics did clash significantly with those of many of the cultures in the Mediterranean world at the time. And this requirement highlighted a challenge that Gentile believers would face. To live differently from the culture around them, indeed, the culture that had formed them. until the moment that they received the grace of the Lord Jesus. And speaking of grace, the call to abstain from sexual immorality was important as a witness to the covenant love of God in which the grace of Jesus is rooted. Love, appropriate, we should mention this, two days before Valentine's Day, Love within a committed covenant is a concept that is is essential for understanding the gospel. In the Old Testament, in places like the book Hosea, God's covenant relationship with God's people is described in terms of a committed relationship. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes the relationship between Jesus and the church with the metaphor of marriage. The way we love is a witness to the love of God that we know through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The love with which God so loved the world, the love with which we are called to devote our heart, soul, mind, and strength to God 
is covenant love. Certainly not self-indulgent love or the take advantage of others love. Covenant love is long-haul love. Self-sacrificial love. The kind of love that was on display in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ when he gave his life for the sins of many. It's 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. Speaking of 1 Corinthians, this letter to the church in Corinth from the Apostle Paul serves as a practical commentary on both of these items that the Jerusalem Council taught the Gentile believers to abstain from. In conclusion, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, works in the church in ways outside of official channels. And we talked about that in depth last week with Peter's encounter with Cornelius and the Holy Spirit's revelation. But Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, also works through institutional actions. The church, members and leaders who are called from the membership, has opportunities to declare what the majors are as they manage the variation among the minors in church life. Along the formal and informal streams of church life, may we continue faithful as we consider strategic changes. As we move forward in the mission of Jesus in our contemporary context, may we anchor deeply in his saving grace while pursuing his purpose. A purpose of worship and a purpose of witness to God's great covenant love. Amen.